And we now come to the preaching of God's word. And we're going to be out of Romans for a couple of weeks. Today, I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And I want to begin by reading verses 1 to 7. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It reads, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. The year was 740 B.C., King Uzziah was dead, and Israel was now in decline, a decline that was pictured in King Uzziah's own fall from grace. King Uzziah was a great king. He had begun well. He had done what was right in the sight of the Lord, leading Judah in a series of military conquests. But toward the end of his 52-year reign, his heart became proud, and he he entered the temple and did what only the priests were permitted to do. He burned incense on the altar of incense to the Lord. Azariah the priest caught Uzziah red-handed, and he rebuked him, and this enraged Uzziah. And immediately, leprosy broke out in his forehead, signaling that he was under the judgment of God. Not only was Uzziah cut off from being king, He was cut off from the house of the Lord and for the remainder of his days lived in total obscurity. And so with the king now dead in Assyria ascending in strength, the future for Israel was bleak. She had enjoyed political stability under Uzziah's reign and that was now in jeopardy. She'd enjoyed prosperity and affluence and yet it had yielded a purely ritualistic worship. And so she had become a sinful nation, a people weighed down with iniquity, sons of corruption who had abandoned the Lord and had despised the Holy One of Israel, having turned away from him, Isaiah 1.4. And so Israel was under the judgment of God. It was now reaping what she had sown. And it was in the midst of the turmoil of that crisis that God gave Isaiah a glorious and heavenly vision 
of the Lord, seated on a high and lofty throne, the very throne of God, as he sovereignly ruled and reigned, reigned as king over all the earth in the full splendor of his majestic holiness, working all of human history in complete accord with his sovereign will. And even as we assess our own time and space and evaluate our own nation, our situation is not that dissimilar. We too are on the heels of decades of prosperity and affluence, belonging to a nation that has squandered her rich national heritage. We've rejected God. We have a, a corrupt and tyrannical federal government. Law and order is in decline. All of the creational norms of marriage, family, and gender are under a full frontal assault. The most wicked and perverse expressions of sexual immorality are often on public display for all to see. We become a culture of death with the murder of the unborn and medically assisted suicide. And if that weren't enough, much of the professing church looks no different than the world. And all of that signals that our nation is under the judgment of God, given over to impurity, degrading passions, and depraved mind, Romans 1, where our society calls evil good and good evil, having exchanged darkness for light and light for darkness, as well as bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, Isaiah 5.20. And so like Isaiah, we find ourselves in a crisis of our own, in need of a, a heavenly vision of glory, and of the holiness of our sovereign king, that no matter how chaotic and corrupt this world may seem, that our king is in sovereign control, moving all of human history toward the full revelation of his majestic glory, when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, either unto eternal salvation or eternal damnation. And Isaiah needed this vision to strengthen and embolden him for his mission. And we too need to be strengthened and emboldened for our mission. That no matter the cost, that no matter the opposition, that no matter the outcome, that we would be faithful to discharge our duties all the way to the end to the honor and glory of our sovereign king. And so as we relive Isaiah 6 and this vision of heavenly glory, it's with all of that in view, that we would be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might as we seek to stand firm against all that opposes us and our mission. And with that in view, note first, the sovereignty of the king, the sovereignty of the king. Look at verse one. It begins, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. And here, the word for Lord is Adonai, and is the title for God that signals his supreme authority and total sovereignty over all things. And so in this vision, amidst great earthly turmoil, Isaiah sees the supremely sovereign ruler of all that exists, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. Now we know that Isaiah is seeing God. He's seeing God on his throne 
And yet we can be more specific than that. Because we know from John's gospel that the one whom Isaiah sees in this moment is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. And we know that from John 12 and verse 41, where it says this, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory referring to Christ and he, that is Isaiah, spoke of him. And so in this vision of the pre-incarnate Christ, we are seeing God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, supremely ruling and reigning over all of the earth. In fact, notice where he is and what he's doing. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. The Lord is seated. Uzziah's death is no cause for concern. There is no crisis in heaven. The Lord is calmly seated on his throne, a throne that exudes immutable stability. In fact, notice what Isaiah says about this throne. He calls it lofty and exalted. Some translations say high and lifted up. And that's because it is this throne that is high and lifted up above all thrones. It is this throne that is established in the heavens. This is the heavenly throne of Almighty God. Psalm 103, 19 says this, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. And so it is this throne to which all earthly thrones are subject. And it's according to the sovereign decree of this throne that all earthly thrones either rise or fall. And notice the majesty of this throne. Last part of verse one, where it says, with the train of his robe, or with the train of his robe filling the temple. So not only is this throne lofty and exalted, but the train of his robe so filled the temple that there was nowhere left to stand. And this is emblematic of the magnificent splendor and majesty of Christ and also signals the, the, the strength and security of his kingly reign. Psalm 93 verses one and two say this, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. And so this vision pictures God the Son, the pre-incarnate Christ, sovereignly ruling and reigning from the Father's throne, high and lifted up over all the kingdoms of the earth as both King of kings and Lord of lords, exercising supreme sovereignty and total authority over the entire universe. And vital to both our resolve and courage to remain faithful in the face of any and all opposition is a strong and settled conviction in the sovereignty of Christ over all things. And the same sovereignty that belonged to him in his pre-incarnate state belongs to him now. He is presently seated at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He is sovereignly ruling and reigning over all of the kingdoms of the earth and is working all things 
after the counsel of his will, moving everything toward the goal of the revelation of his manifest glory and the establishment of the kingdom of God. And that means this, that everything that's happening in the world in this moment is taking place by the sovereign order of his throne. Nothing is beyond the bounds of his meticulous sovereignty. He is sovereign over everything. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. He has sovereignly decreed the end from the beginning. He does whatever he pleases in heaven and in earth. He declares, my purpose will, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. He nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. It is his counsel that stands forever and the plans of his heart from generation to generation. In fact, as he surveys the rebellion of the rulers of the nations, he laughs and scoffs at them, Psalm 2. They are no threat to him, no threat to his counsel, no threat to his purpose. And that's because nothing can thwart his purpose. All the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded by him as nothing more than a speck of dust. In fact, he regards them as less than nothing and meaningless. Again, his throne is established in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And so he is sovereign over nations. He is sovereign over kings. He is sovereign over presidents. He is sovereign over prime ministers. He is sovereign over premiers. He is sovereign over elections. He is sovereign over politics. He is sovereign over wars. He is sovereign over plagues. He is sovereign over the weather. He is sovereign over persecution. He is sovereign over circumstances. He is sovereign over outcomes. He is sovereign over sickness and disease. He is sovereign over success and failure. He is sovereign over life and death. He is sovereign over history. He is sovereign over sin. He is sovereign over salvation. He is sovereign over Satan. He is sovereign over the entire earth. He is absolutely sovereign over everything. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. And we all said, Amen. Amen. Is that your conviction? Because as the corruption and chaos of this world only increases, you are going to be, need to be firmly anchored in a conviction around the sovereignty of God. If you are going to be faithful in the face of any and all opposition, you are going to have to lay anchor to God's sovereignty. And you can be completely settled in that conviction in the absolute sovereignty of Christ, that no matter what is happening in this life, it is taking place right on schedule by order of the throne in accord with his divine purpose and is always working for good in the lives of God's people. That's the sovereignty of the king. Now second, the holiness of the king. The holiness of the king. Look at verse two. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. Now, this is the only time that angels are referred to as seraphim. It literally means burning ones. So these are angelic beings who glow as though they're on fire. 
And in relation to the Lord, who is seated on the throne, the seraphim are above him. And so everything in the heavenly scene is revolving around the throne. And each seraphim has six wings, with each pair performing a different function. With two, it says, he covered his face. It's an amazing thing. Angels aren't just powerful. They are also holy. They exist in a state of perfect purity. And yet in the presence of the radiance of the holiness of Christ, they must hide their eyes. They can't even bear to look on him. And that's because he is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature, Hebrews 1.3. And so not only is he holy, but he also dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 1.6.16. Uh, so that in the same way that you can't even look at the sun, a holy, powerful, and perfectly pure angel can't even behold the, the blazing holiness of Christ. They have to cover their face. And with two, he covered his feet. An expression of worship and humility. Signifying that the place where they were was holy ground. The holy of holies. And with two, it says he flew. Signifying not just readiness, but eagerness as they waited upon the Lord and were awaiting their next assignment. These angels are eagerly obedient and love to do their master's will. Verse three, and one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's the resounding chorus of heaven. Holy, holy, holy. In fact, even when John receives his vision of heavenly glory in Revelation, he cites the same thing. He sees the same thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Revelation 4.8. This is the chorus of heaven. And to, to express God's holiness in this way was to use the superlative. And this was the, the greatest way to, to emphasize anything in the Hebrew language. God is holy. He is holier. He is holiest. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. And this is the only attribute of God that is ever expressed this way. It doesn't ever say love, 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 nor grace, 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 or even good, 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 which would be totally true. But what it says is holy, 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 emphasizing the complete otherness of God. And to accentuate this holiness all the more, look at verse four. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. So these angelic beings are so powerful 
that the foundations of the temple shake at the sound of their voice. They are mighty in strength, Psalm 103.20. And just think, when, when the apostle John encounters an angel in the book of Revelation, how does he respond? He, he, he falls down to worship, and, and wrongfully so. The angel says, don't do that. Instead, worship God. I'm a servant like you. Don't worship me. But for fallen man, in the presence of a holy angel, this powerful and pure being, the, the, the fallen man's instinct is to bow down and worship. And yet here, when they're in the presence of God, even with the, the, the foundation of the temple shaking at the sound of their voice, they cover their face and their feet and call out one to another, holy, holy, holy. And not only were the foundations of the threshold shaking, quaking, end of verse four, the temple was filling with smoke, which is consistent with the manifestation of the presence of God to man as at Sinai, when God appeared accompanied by thunder and lightning and a thick cloud causing the people of Israel to tremble. So the whole mountain was engulfed in smoke as it ascended like the smoke of a furnace, causing the whole mountain to quake violently, all of it pointing to the holiness of God. God is holy, holy, holy. And his holiness points to two realities, two inseparable realities. The one is the one you would think of most, his moral purity. We'll look at that second. The first is his transcendence. God declares of himself, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, Isaiah 46.9. He is completely distinct, completely set apart from everything else. And this is seen in his attributes, his incommunicable attributes. For example, there's the aseity of God, the aseity of God. This is maybe my favorite attribute of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y, the aseity of God, that God is totally independent, self-existent, and self-sufficient, in need of nothing from anyone or anything. There's also the eternality of God, that God transcends time, having no beginning and no end. There's the blessedness of God. Psalm 119.12 says, blessed are you, O Lord, where blessedness refers to total contentment and happiness. Happiness exists because God is happy. There's the immensity of God, that God transcends all space, that he cannot be contained. As Solomon declared, at the consecration of the temple, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, 1 Kings 8.27. There's the immutability of God, that God isn't subject to change, that with God there is no variation or shifting shadow, James 1.17. And so he cannot change, quote, in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises, unquote. And that's why he's unwavering in his faithfulness. But he's also omnipotent, all-powerful, and able to execute the entirety of his holy will. 
only being rightfully limited by his own nature since he can't do anything that's inconsistent with who he is. And he's also omniscient, all-knowing, quote, knowing all things that are proper objects of knowledge, including all future events, unquote. No one has ever informed God of anything. And he's also omnipresent, being present in all spaces with his entire being, which is why you can't flee from his presence, Psalm 139. Whether you are in Sheol or hell or in the highest heaven, you cannot flee God's presence. He is omnipresent. He is present in both heaven and hell. And there's the perfection of God, which consists of, quote, the absolute completeness and fullness of God. He doesn't lack anything, unquote. And there's also this, the incomprehensibility of God, that God is incomprehensible, that not even an eternity of eternities will be sufficient to exhaust the depths of who he is. We will spend all of eternity growing in our knowledge of God. And so God is transcendent. He is the incomparable God, totally set apart from all creation. And the fact of the matter is this, that whatever can be said of the Father can also be said of who? The Son and also the Spirit. And so Christ is transcendent. And the other piece that's inseparable from this is to his moral perfection. That God is entirely set apart from sin without any spot or blemish. First John 1 John 1.5, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God exists in total moral purity and is the source of all that's good and right. James 1.13 says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God has total immunity from temptation, and he is never its source. Habakkuk 1.13 says this, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. God never condones evil, but instead delights in loving kindness, justice, and righteousness, Jeremiah 9. 24. Psalm 5, 5 says this, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. God hates those who practice iniquity. And Psalm 7, 11 says he's angry with the wicked every day. And so in light of his holiness, his, his moral purity, God says, Quote, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, Leviticus 19.2. God declares in no uncertain terms that he is holy, set apart from sin, set apart to righteousness, and he requires, demands that his people be set apart as well. In fact, we see the same command reiterated in 1 Peter 1.16. So God is perfect in moral purity and is the standard of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And as we said, whatever can be said of the Father can also be said of the Son and the Spirit. And so not only 
is Christ the King, the supremely sovereign ruler over all of creation, but he is also holy, 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 entirely set apart from all creation and entirely set apart from all moral imperfection. That's the holiness of the king. But let's highlight third, the glory of the king, because there is a reference to his glory in the final line of verse three. It says there, the whole earth is full of his glory. So that's a reality now. Even right now, the whole earth is full of the glory of Christ. And so in what sense is that true? How can it be said that right now, at this moment, the whole earth is full of the glory of Christ? Well, for one, God's presence and glory are linked And God is omnipresent. And so that the whole earth is full of his glory indicates that God is not restricted to a temple, not an earthly temple, nor a heavenly temple. He is omnipresent, and therefore, in some sense, his glory is everywhere. And two, all of creation is a reflection of his divine nature. You remember this from Romans 1.20, it says this, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So the created order testifies to the divine nature of God. And in that sense, his glory is all over the earth. It fills the earth. The heavens are declaring the glory of God, Psalm 19.1. And yet in both cases, the glory of God that's on display isn't his visible and manifest glory or his, the, the, his intrinsic glory, the, the radiance of his intrinsic glory. No, it's not that glory. It's that which points to his intrinsic glory. There is a, an intrinsic glory of God that, that, that is, is rightfully God's and belongs to his very being and essence. And yet that glory is not yet on display. We're seeing that which points to that glory. We're seeing seeing shadows of that glory. And yet a time is coming when the glory of God will be the light that will illuminate all of creation in the new heavens and new earth. Revelation 21, 22 and following says this, I saw no temple in it for the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And so, when the fullness of God's kingdom finally comes, then and at that time, the whole earth, the new heavens and new earth, will be full of his glory in a far more manifestly visible way, where there will be no need for a sun, for his his glory will light the whole thing up. And since Christ is co-creator with the Father and co-equally God with him, the intrinsic glory of God belongs to him as much as it belongs to the Father. So Isaiah is given a heavenly vision of the pre-incarnate Christ in all his glory 
He has seen the Lord seated on a throne, lofty and exalted, and has witnessed the chorus of heaven resounding, holy, holy, holy. And now there's a shift. One that is dramatic and even dreadful. Because it's in the radiance of the Lord's holiness that Isaiah finds himself experiencing a terrible sense of self-awareness. The awareness of his own unholiness. And so note forth the condemnation of the king. The condemnation of the king. This comes out in verse 5. Then I said, woe is me. It's effectively a curse. And it's not the first woe pronounced in Isaiah's prophecy. In fact, in the previous chapter, chapter five, there are no less than six woes pronounced, only in that case, Isaiah is pronouncing woes on others. Here, the woe that's being pronounced is on himself. A sorrowful denunciation of himself. For he says, I am ruined. You could render this, I have been destroyed. And it's not as though Isaiah was ignorant of the holiness of God. Isaiah knew God to be holy. He had God's revelation to that point in history. But now he was experiencing the holiness of God on a level he had never experienced it before. And he was cut to the quick. The blazing holiness of Christ was shining in all its purity on the very core of his being. He was now seeing himself in the perfectly pure mirror of the holiness of Christ and all of his sin was now more abundantly apparent to him than it had ever been. There's only a few moments like this in scripture. Peter had one. Do you remember Luke 5? Jesus had been teaching on a boat, seated, just a little bit put out from shore. And after teaching for a long time, he wanted to feed the multitude, the crowd that was with him. And so he said to Peter, who was in the boat with him, put out a little further, let down your net and get a catch. Fact is, the disciples had been fishing all night prior to that, caught nothing. So Peter initially protests, but acquiesces, puts down his net, gets a catch so big 
the nets begin to break, has to call over the, the, the other boat. They begin to fill each boat and the boats are sinking. And when Peter saw it, he fell down at the feet of Jesus and said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Luke 5, 8. That was Peter's own Isaiah moment. A dreadful sense of his own sinfulness. In that moment, Peter knew that he was in the presence of perfect holiness, perfect purity. And all of his own sin was never more evident to him than it was in that moment. But it's interesting because when Isaiah expresses why it is that he is pronouncing this woe upon himself, why it is that he's ruined, the reason that he gives is not what you think. On a surface level, it would almost seem to miss the severity of his situation. It's expressed in the second line of verse 5 where it says, because I'm a man of unclean lips. Why does Isaiah say this? Well, for one, he has just witnessed angelic beings, powerful and pure angelic beings, say one to another, holy, 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 offering to God the praise he's rightfully due. And Isaiah knows he can't praise God like that. His lips are too impure. So the whole scene functions to signal to Isaiah that he is a man of impure lips. And for two, he knows the lips reveal the heart. That it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. So if the lips are impure, then what? So too is the heart. And so this is an admission about the condition of his heart. And this was a prophet. And it's not just his lips. It's the lips of the entire nation. Third line of verse five, and I live among a people of unclean lips. So not only does it go without saying that the nation is not in any position to rightfully praise God, they've already turned to a ritualistic dead orthodoxy, believing that offering the animal sacrifice in itself was pleasing to God while their hearts were far from him. Not only that, that's obvious, but Isaiah is so touched by sin that the uncleanness of their lips has rubbed off on him. He's surrounded by impurity and the purity of the heavenly scene has never made him feel more impure. And that's why he says in verse five, end of verse five, last line, for my eyes have seen the Lord, or the King rather, the Lord of hosts. All he had to do is see the King 
and all of this unfolds before him. Now, this was a dreadful moment. Isaiah was destroyed. And yet, as dreadful as this moment was, there's nothing that you or I need more than this dreadful sense of our own sinfulness. To have an Isaiah moment of our own, where the Spirit of God would grant us a clear vision of the king through the revelation of his word that we too would experience a dreadful self-awareness of our sin. In fact, if you've never experienced anything like that, if you've never had a moment where you were under the kind of conviction where it's as though there is a light from heaven shining down on you and blazing purity to expose all of your sin, bringing to your mind all of your guilt, where you recognize that you are alienated from God and justly condemned under his righteous judgment, then I would pray that this moment would be that for you right now. It's condemnation that precedes salvation. Why would you ever cry out to the Savior if you didn't sense your need for him? The fact of the matter is we all need the Savior. No one is exempt. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But not everyone recognizes their need of the Savior. And so you need to be quickened with conviction over your guilt before God, that you would then understand why it is he sent his only son into the world to do what he's done. And I would submit this to you, that apart from salvation itself, you could receive no greater gift than this dreadful sense that Isaiah is experiencing here in Isaiah 6. It's the greatest gift from God you could receive. And to help you with that, to appreciate the severity of the situation, just consider what we saw a moment ago, that God is omniscient. He knows everything. And he's perfect in moral purity. And so he knows your every transgression, every sin you've ever committed, everything you've ever done that you know in your heart of hearts is wrong, every sinful thought you've ever conceived, every sinful word you've ever said, every sinful deed you've ever done, every failure to do what is right, every expression of sinful pride, every expression of sinful hate, every expression of selfishness and self-interest and self-centeredness. He knows what you, what, excuse me, what you really think. He knows what you really want. He knows your motives and intentions. 
He knows your sins done out in the open. He knows your sins done in secret. He knows everything. And since he is holy, 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 there is nothing more terrifying than that. In fact, if you're terrified in this moment, then you're exactly where you ought to be. That is a right and proper response to the holiness of God. At the same time, even for us who are already in Christ, we don't graduate from our need of this. We need the holiness of Christ to be engraved on our hearts. We need this for our sanctification. In fact, I guarantee that the greatest deficiency in both your life and mine is an inadequate view of the holiness of God. And that most, if not all of the issues of our lives would be solved with a renewed sense of the holiness of God. Nothing is more needful than this. And Isaiah is ruined. But God doesn't leave him there. There's another dramatic shift in the scene. That was the condemnation of the king. Now, fifth, we come to the atonement of the king. The atonement of the king. Verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand which he had taken from the altar with tongs. Now it's unthinkable that this seraphim secured the coal and flew to Isaiah on his own initiative. This, this had to have been by order of the throne, in which case not only was this vision given to Isaiah, a God-initiated vision given to Isaiah to secure his repentance, but even this moment of the, the angel grabbing the coal and going to Isaiah is God's initiative, the initiative of Christ in dealing with the guilt of his sin. And I mean, you just put yourself in his shoes. I mean, he's just seeing everything that he's seeing. And now one of these blazing seraphim is flying toward him with a, a coal in his hand. Was there terror or was there a sense of calm and peace? Verse seven, it says, he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. The word there rendered iniquity refers to the guilt caused by sin. That's why Isaiah was ruined. It was the guilt caused by his sin. And as soon as that coal touched his lips, it was taken away. Removed from him. As far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103.12.
And where it says there, your sin is forgiven, the Hebrew word that's being used there is the word for atonement. It means to cover. And so with this symbolic act, Isaiah's sin was covered. Atoned for. And yet we know that it wasn't the coal that ultimately atoned for his sin, was it? The only reason this coal had any efficacy at all is because why? It pointed forward to the atonement of all atonements. The atonement that would atone for the sin of all who would ever believe. Though it wouldn't be an animal sacrifice, nor would it be a burning coal. Instead, the very one whom Isaiah saw seated on a high and lofty throne, that one would condescend from his lofty and exalted position and would enter human existence as the suffering servant. The very one Isaiah will go on to prophesy of in Isaiah 53. The one who would be pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Whereby the chastening of our well-being would fall on him so that by his scourging we are healed. As God the Father would be pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And so God the Son would step down from that glorious and exalted throne and add to himself a human nature being born under the law, walking in perfect obedience, fulfilling all righteousness, doing the Father's will, pleasing him in every respect, all the while being tempted and always as we are, yet what? Without sin. And then, according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, he would go to the cross and despise the shame, and while on that cross would suffer under the full weight of his Father's wrath, bearing in his own body our sin, becoming a curse for us in order that we might be delivered from the curse of the law, becoming sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him by receiving in himself an eternity of eternities of divine judgment. And once completed, what did he say? It is finished. And on his own authority, gave up his last breath, laying down his life, dying in our place and was buried in a tomb. And then what? On the third day, he rose from the grave, proving he had conquered both sin and death and that he had satisfied the father's wrath, having made propitiation for our sins. And then he ascended back to his exalted place to the right hand of the father to rule and reign from the Father's throne only now as the God-man and on the divine timetable there yet remains a day of reckoning when he will return in judgment bringing divine justice to all those who have rejected him. And so this is the time. If you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you could not have a clear presentation to you of the truth of God, the gospel of God, that God is holy and perfect and just, and that he will bring every violation of his righteousness to justice, either whereby it is dealt with at the cross of Christ 
where full atonement has been made, or whereby you will enter into an eternity of eternities of judgment. And if you're going to escape the wrath of God, you have to then flee to Christ and believe on him, the one whom the Father sent into the world to accomplish salvation, redemption, forgiveness, mercy. And if you would come to him by faith and would put your trust in him and believe on him and him alone, rejecting all self-righteousness and looking to him as the, the sole satisfaction for your sins, that you will be forgiven of your sins and clothed in his righteousness. You'll be given the keys to heaven where you will have the hope of heaven, the guarantee that the moment you give up your last breath, you will enter his glory, his presence, absent from the body, present with the Lord and will dwell with him from then on into all eternity and into the new heavens and new earth. And so have you believed on him? Because there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And what a savior he is. That's the atonement of the king. And it is a glorious atonement. And so we've seen this that this king is totally sovereign over everything, that this king is holy, 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 being both totally transcendent and perfect in moral purity, that a clear vision of this king rightly brings condemnation, and that this king has made glorious provision for the forgiveness of sins through the shedding of his own blood, so that he is the unrivaled, unparalleled and matchless king. So I said that Isaiah needed this for his mission. Why would that be? Well, it comes out in verse eight and following. It says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I. Send me. He said, go and tell this people. And here's the message he's going to bring. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Isaiah was being commissioned to go to a generation and a people that would reject both him and his message. And it would be this vision of the sovereignty and holiness of the king that would grant him the needed conviction to fulfill his ministry. And just in the same way that we find ourselves in a similar time nationally as Isaiah found himself in in Isaiah 6, we may have a similar mission. We may proclaim 
the death and resurrection of Christ and call men to repentance and reconciliation with God and be totally rejected. And may even suffer immensely in the cause of Christ. Tradition has it Isaiah was sawn in two. But regardless of what befalls us, our king is in sovereign control moving all of human history toward its intended end. And so no matter the cost, the opposition, or the outcome, we have every reason to faithfully discharge our duties all the way to the end, to the honor and glory of our coming king. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this portion of scripture that you've given to us. We pray that you would engrave your holiness and the holiness of Christ upon our hearts, convict us of sin, and may we look to Christ in all his glory in light of his death, resurrection, and ascension. It's in his name we pray, amen.